Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einsteiner Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteiner Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. It is our very last episode for 2021. If you're like me and you've only just figured out that we're about to hit 2022, that's okay. It's a bit weird. Uh, we have the whole crew pretty much uh, either on the line or in the studio today. It's going to be a big show. With me in the studio is Dr. Lyndon. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Wonderful to see you in 3D this morning. I know. People say that. And I, always, I look at myself thinking, have I, because I did eat a lot of cheesecake this week. <laughs> see you in 4D. You're aging before my eyes. <laughs> a little bit too 3D. And we also have on the line a huge uh, group. I'm going to go around the whole group, come back to you in a minute. Oh, Dr. Stacey, I'm sorry. I should grab you first because you're in the studio. <laughs> That's all right. You can do me last. <laughs> How are you going? Yeah, really well. Great you're to be here, Dr. Shane. You always travel such a long way to get to the studio. I appreciate that. And online, and let me just uh, make sure I can hear them. I have, uh, well, Dr. Crystal, good morning. Actually, I'm just going to announce them all because they're all going to turn on their mics at different times. We've got Dr. Crystal, we've got Dr. Jen, Dr. Lauren, Dr. Laura, Dr. Ewan, Dr. Ray, uh, Dr. Lyndon, uh, Gracie all the way from Texas. And we've got Liv, who does our Twitter feed online as well. Hi, team. How are you going? Say hello. Dr. Shane. Hello, Shane. Everybody. There we go. Good morning. Got, and I didn't announce him because I can't see his face, but Chris KP's there. Good morning, buddy. How are you, mate? Am I audible? You're audible, as oh, usual. Good. Sorry. Very audible. Now, folks, uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to go through a lot of the fantastic news and events and things that have happened in the world of science over this weird and wonderful year that we have had and disastrous in some cases, but we'll try and stick to the positive. But also, very sadly to us, we have to say goodbye to one of our team members today. Dr. Crystal is, unfortunately for us, but I suspect fortunately for her, taking on a very amazing new job in London and moving away. Crystal, give us a quick lowdown. What are you up to? Oh, thanks, Dr. Shane. Um, I've got a new job uh, in London, uh, working uh, with the company I work for, uh, GSK, and really excited to have the opportunity uh, to work overseas. And so my family and I will be jetting over to London uh, in the new year. Yep. And you realise uh, with the way we're doing the show, that doesn't make any difference whatsoever. You can just keep doing it. It just means you have to get up at like 2am. Are you up for that? Maybe not. Oh, I'm up for it. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll happily be your London correspondent and jump in uh, as needed. Sounds good. Now, folks, uh, let's get into some news and uh, stories and things from the year. Um, we're going to start off with uh, Stacey. She's in the studio with me. What has really blown you away this uh, year, Stacey? Oh, well, there's been lots of uh, low lights and highlights. Yeah. Uh, but I thought I would do a bit of a, uh, a wrap-up of the best uh, and the wackiest uh, citizen science projects for 2021. Oh, yeah. So what should we start with, wacky or, or, or the most familiar? Uh, go with the wacky ones. Go with the wacky. All right. The wacky one, wackiest one was um, a project uh, initiated this year by the University of New England, and it was titled Soil Your Un Undies. Oh. Yeah. So what do you, what do you think that was about? <laughs> Uh, I don't want to say that on I'm there. I'm hoping but... that it's 
dirt testing. Yeah. Tell yeah. us yeah. it's dirt all testing. Right. Yeah. All right, I'll tell you it's dirt testing. <laughs> You're right. Um, essentially, what they wanted participants to do, um, so the university would send participants a pair of 100% cotton undies and uh, participants from all over Australia needed to bury their undies in the topsoil and leave it there for two months. And at the end of the two months, they needed to dig it up uh, and take a photo and submit the photo to the university for analysis. And essentially what they wanted to do was explore the levels of decomposition of the underwear. Um, And if you had it, obviously, if it was more decomposed, that was an indicator of um, a really good biological activity, um, which is a good indicator of of healthy soils. And what it enabled the scientists to do was to, um, you know, compare soil health from across quite a a wide geographical area of Australia, um, rather than having to deploy scientists to field um, to the field to gather those observations themselves and then they were able to sort of pair that up with other indicators of soil health like looking at pH and temperature profile yeah. and things like that. So oh, that was cool. quite cool. Yep. And, and then the other one which I think Triple R listeners would be very familiar with is the um, BirdLife Australia app. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. People love this. It's going insane these days. Yeah, well particularly um, with everyone in lockdown in, in, in Melbourne, yeah. um, you know we're spending more time at home and everyone's like quite engaged in, in citizen science projects. So um, this atlas of Australian birds has actually been running for um, several decades. It started in 1977, mm. um, and they've amassed 12 million bird records. Um, and uh, so, you know, they you can submit data um, via a web app or a smartphone app, um, and they like to be able to track um, distribution and abundance of bird species across Australia, but also changes in um, habitat and mm. uh, sort of new sort of uh, impacts on bird species. Um, so, yeah, they ran, a, 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 you know, quite a successful year. And then they did the um, uh, Bird of the Year as well. Yep. Uh, did you know what that was? It was... Uh, I know Dr. Ewan was very upset, yes, wasn't he? Yes, that's my Ewan main memory as well, upset. Dr. Ewan That's Ewan the part annoyed. that was stuck with me. He was really pissed off it wasn't the pelican, I think, or something. Absolutely. It was robbed. <laughs> You'll have to submit more votes next year. Wasn't Ewan? it the fairy wren? Yeah. Yeah, was... a little fairy wren. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The superb fairy wren. Superb. I'd yeah. love to be. Uh, you you and had five phones going. He was voting like <laughs> he, he was out of control. <laughs> Um, and then one more, we've got the Frog ID app, which is quite um, everyone loves a bit of a, uh, a froggy, a froggy story. So, um, so again, they've, this is where you submit um, audio of yep. fro- frog mating calls, and it's been running for about four years. And they've got about half a million um, uh, records of across 240 species. And again, it's really important for scientists to monitor um, new species, preferred breeding habits, and, and um, breeding times. But also helps us understand um, how frogs are responding to environmental in- impacts such as. Yeah. Climate change. So, oh, yeah. look, it's it's super cool. I love seeing those things going. And these days, with all the um, the amazing ability to record location, time, everything in these apps, you know, they they give you so much information. And I think they'll get to the point where they're recording the local weather and everything as well. So yeah. it's 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 super cool. Just an avalanche of data. So thank you, Stacey. Cool stuff. All right, next up, uh, Dr. Ailey, what do you got for us? Dr. Shane, I thought I'd do a. Uh a fun good news story for 2021, and this was the really exciting one about the uh, the, the ingenuity, which is the Mars helicopter. Oh, don't get me started. So, I know, so exciting, hey? So, basically, back in uh, February 18, 2021, Perseverance, which was the Mars rover with the Ingenuity attached to its underside, landed on Mars at the uh, Jezero crater. And since then, the Ingenuity was detached. And on the 19th of April, it made its its first flight. Uh, didn't 
go too high, but just a little, you know, up and down just to see if it would work. But it was the first time that we've ever had uh, a flight um, rather than, you know, a rover which sits on the ground on another planet. So that was really cool. And since then, the uh, Ingenuity has done, I think it's about 18 flights so far, the last one being just a few days ago on the 15th Mm. of December, um, where it popped up for uh, about two minutes, went a grand total of about... 10 metres in altitude and then popped back down again. But it's it's really fantastic to be able to get this completely different perspective on Mars. And, um, you know, we say helicopter, it's a tiny thing. Its rotors are only 1.2 uh, metres wide. So really it's more of a glorified drone, but we'll take it. And, um, no, it's really exciting and it, it, it's it's kind of, you know, revolutionised how we think about flight because, you know, we think about flight on other planets. We have to have atmospheres in order to, to be able to fly these things. So there's so much exciting tech and so much exciting stuff that's gone into this. Um, and it even carries a tiny little piece of fabric uh, from the, the 1903 Wright Brothers plane. So I always, I always, this blows me away too, to think that, you know, humans took their first flights in a plane like 120 years ago. Mm. We're now flying a helicopter on Mars. That blows my mind. And so I thought that was a really, really exciting news story for 2021. It's amazing stuff, absolutely amazing stuff. And the the designers of that, given the, the thin atmosphere on Mars, just wild ride getting that to work and it's it's just heading, heading off now it's heading off the out of sight you know they're flying it so far you can't even see it in the cameras anymore yep. it's um it's doing these long flights so it's great for working out where the rover will go um and yep. what it will investigate you know it's not just a fun thing it's really important for exploration so great stuff dr jen what have you got for us well, Dr. Shane, if I asked you what your favourite invertebrate was, I'm guessing you're probably not going to say a millipede. I feel a bit sorry for millipedes. They seem to get a bit of a rough ride. But uh, I need to tell you about a new millipede that has just been discovered or at least been announced this month. So the name millipede means a thousand legs. But in fact, until recently, the millipede with the largest number of legs that we knew about was a species in California that only had 750 legs. Mm. So what a total furphy talking about it being a millipede because you've (laughs) got to have a thousand legs to be a millipede. And that's what's just been found. So scientists have just uh, announced, just described a new species of millipede living right here in Australia and wait for it this little beastie has 1306 legs so this is the world's first true millipede by 306 legs it makes it across the line which is pretty cool right yeah take that rest of the world you garbage Exactly. So so some millipedes live in caves, but most millipedes that we at least interact with and think of uh, live on the surface and they play a really important role breaking down leaf litter. But this particular new species, Eumillipes Persephone, was named after the Greek goddess of the underworld because it was found 60 metres below the ground Whoa. and it was actually discovered in a drill hole uh, for mining exploration in the eastern goldfields of Western Australia. So it's about 95 millimetres long, as you would expect for an animal that lives so far below the ground. It's really pale. It doesn't have any eyes. It's got a beak for feeding. It's got uh, enormous antennae. It's 330 segments long, which is pretty impressive. Uh, And we think it evolved to be so long because the longer it is, the more strength it has to kind of move between small crevices and rocks and things. But 
I guess the key thing to know is that this is a really resource-rich area uh, where a lot of mining happens and we need to make sure we protect this amazing new Persephone uh, millipede, which I reckon is just pretty cool that we we got it first, the world's first true millipede. Go Australia. Yeah, I'm very excited about that. And can I add, I never, ever want to see this thing. <laughs> I can't stand <laughs> it. Uh, but yeah, well, it's fantastic. very little, Shane. Yeah, yeah. It's little. Yeah, yeah. Still, same, same position, not changing my position. Something with that many legs, keep it away from me. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, thank you. Uh, Dr. Lauren, what do you got for us? Well, I think I might need to bring it back to a cute, fluffy animal after that because <laughs> everyone's got very scary thoughts in their minds now. So let's talk about dogs. Um, so I'm sure that you all agree that dogs look particularly cute when they sit and look at you and tilt their head on the side. Um, And I'm sure all of you have seen animals do that. And it's up until now, scientists have actually not known why they do that. Um, And so they've just finished a study that's been published in the journal Animal Cognition, where they've trained 40 dogs over a period of three months to name toys. So they showed them a whole selection of toys, up to 160 different toys, taught them what the name was, and then saw whether or not the dogs could go and fetch the correct toy. The really interesting thing is that of those 40, most couldn't do this. So 33 of those dogs were not good at actually finding the correct toy, which is fair enough. Um, But of the seven that did um, have the ability to go and locate the correct toy, they found that all of those dogs actually tilted their head on the side when they were being told the name of the toy. And so what they have decided is that tilting on the head is actually the dogs processing the information recalling in their memory and then identifying which toy they need to go and find. Interesting. Interesting. I'm going to start doing this in meetings. I'm going to start tilting my head just to indicate that I'm thinking about what you're saying, but I'm not responding. I'm thinking. Exactly. So my my favourite bit of this story is, so the best dog was a a Border Collie, which is probably not a surprise. They're a very smart breed. But a Border Collie called Whiskey. So Whiskey was able to identify 160 different toys and he was able to successfully do this 54 out of 59 trials over three months. Like this is just insane. It's actually better than most humans would do. So well done, Whiskey. You deserve a good Christmas treat. Yep. Fantastic stuff. I love that. Thank you so much, Lauren. Interesting stuff. Uh, Next up, uh, Dr. Laura, what do you got for us? With your uh, microphone on, madam. We're still doing that. I've got my microphone on. I'm still doing that. I know, it's 2021. (laughs) Following on the dog theme, and I'm just so inspired by, you know, the smartness of whiskey, I just assume my dog, when she tells her head, is trying to con me into more food, but also using just the wonderful ways of our dogs. Um, Many different countries and reports have been coming out all over the year of using dogs in airports to screen for COVID-19. And this was first trialled in Helsinki Airport, but now it's been rolled out over um, in the UK and the USA and most recently in Adelaide Airport as well. And we know that dogs can smell things that we can't. They can detect bio odours such as prostate cancer and malaria. And so dogs that have been trained to smell COVID-19 now, um, and imagine how rapid this can be. So people are just taking a skin swab 
they're putting it down and the dogs are just lining up and smelling it. And you can get through a whole plane in half an hour wow. because um, dog two dogs can get through 300 people, right? It's been shown that they're 88 to 94% efficient in various trials that have been pulled together. And so anyone that, um, you know, get the dog gets a sort of a yes from, gets a head nod, they go and they get a PCR test. And so that's like an amazingly efficient way of going through. And just as a wild card, by the way, just because we're talking about things smelling COVID-19, bees are also being trialled to do this as well. And so um, Dutch researchers have trained bees to smell COVID-19 swabs. When they do so, they stick out their tongues, which is pretty cute. It's because they're expecting a sugar water reward. And so, of course, no swarms of bees are going to be released. But yet in certain countries that can't detect and um, don't have the infrastructure for rapid PCR testing and so forth, and bees could be used as a low-cost method to rapidly detect um, COVID-19 positive cases. This is fantastic. Next time I go to a medical facility, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give that information. If they say, you know, have you been exposed by buying some? Well, I actually had a dog test earlier today, and I'm clear. <laughs> My dog smelt me and didn't have a problem. So I don't have a dog, but I'm going to use your dog, Dr. Laura, because you obviously are in the know with regards to T-cells and shit, so I'm so- sure your dog is well-trained to sniff out T-cells at 100 metres. Well, yeah, I mean, she can recognise the names of her two different toys, Sookie and Moose. So, you know, I'm sure she'll be down for smelling COVID-19 any day now. I'll get started on that. A high standard. All right, folks, we're going to take a short break from all this amazing stuff that's happened during the year, and we will be back in just a few moments. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 Triple R. Triple R. Now, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo. It's the last show for the year, which is a bit sad, although, got to be honest, some of us want a few weeks off. Uh, Sunday's back, you know, it's an important thing. A, uh, one piece of uh, news from me um, in terms of, I'm counting this as a highlight for the year because it's going to happen before the end of the year, but we are launching, hopefully, the James Webb Telescope on, guess which day, folks? Christmas bloody day in Australia. 24th for the US, but, you know, who cares? Uh, Christmas Day for us, which is going to be really cool. So fingers crossed for the weather, fingers crossed for the, you know, 10 million things that have to go right for the launch, but um, it's been delayed for a very long time. So we're really uh, excited that that will hopefully go ahead. Now, next up, uh, Ewan, what have you got for us? Howdy. Well, I'm going to continue the mammalian theme, but I'm going to talk about something much bigger than dogs, about whales, and specifically about whale poo. Now, we know that whales are big, and particularly baleen whales. So think about things like blue whales and humpback whales. A blue whale, as an example, its uh, arteries are large enough for a small child to swim through, so about nine inches, okay? Mm. So these are big animals. Now, we know that also whale populations, unfortunately, many, many decades ago were decimated through hunting. Now, some of those populations are making a resurgence, particularly humpback whales, blue whales and some other species, not so much. But what is really fascinating is scientists have actually worked out how much whales eat and how much whales therefore poo. And you might think, well, why is that interesting? You know, why does that matter? Well, first of all, some of these whales weigh up to 45 tonnes and are eating a third of their body weight in a day, right? So if I had to eat a third of my body weight in a day, I have to eat roughly 25 kilos of food per day, okay? That wouldn't end well for me. So they're feeding these baleen whales largely on what's called um, krill, which are little tiny little crustaceans, shrimp-like little animals. And this study was really fascinating. So they tracked whales. They put suction cap devices that track where the whales go. 
they then use drones to take images of the whales and work out how big these whales are. And again, blue whales can be up to 30 metres long. And then they use sound waves to basically measure how much krill is in the water. So therefore, they can basically work out when a whale is feeding by how big it is and when it opens its mouth and when it's feeding, how much krill it's taking in. And what's fascinating about this is because when, of course, whales were hunted, people predicted that krill numbers would increase dramatically, mm. and they didn't. And the reason why is because the oceans aren't being fertilised as much anymore. So whales go down, they eat krill, they come to the top and they poo. And that is like massive fertiliser for the ocean. And that drives what we call phytoplankton, tiny little plants, which, of course, then feeds uh, zooplankton, which includes krill. And that drives the whole system. So it's a really fascinating example of how, you know, these really large mammals have completely transformed our oceans. But it's a good news story because they're arguing that if whale populations continue to recover, it'll make our oceans even more productive than they currently are. So in terms of the amount of iron, if we go back in the past, they estimated that 10 times more iron, um, sorry, 12,000 tonnes of iron was going into the ocean, so 10 times what's currently going into the ocean. So it's, it's massive amounts of, of, of nutrients. So I think it just, again, highlights that, you know, I think when we think about things like carbon cycles and nitrogen cycles and so forth, we're often taught about those, you know, in, in you know, uh, high school biology and so forth, but very rarely an animal was part of that, you know, part of that sort of teaching. And this quite clearly shows that these large mammals are really, really important part of the biogeochemical cycle. So, yeah, just really fascinating research. Mm. It's interesting. You wonder, like, there's got to be, you know, you've got whales at the huge size and krill and, you know, some of the food that they eat at the other, the other end of the spectrum. But everything in between must be affected by this cycle as well, which is, I guess, we haven't heard so much about. A- absolutely, because the phytoplankton, the zooplankton drives the whole system. So mm. if you like plants on land, you know, without, without that primary production, the ecosystems don't have that energy flowing through them. So. Yeah, yeah, incredible, incredible how the uh, the effect of these big creatures is so enormous on. I mean, the, one way to think of it is that the ocean is not small; it is a no. vast, vast ecosystem, and to have an effect on such a vast ecosystem is phenomenal. Thank you, Doctor Yuan. Uh, next up, uh, Doctor Ray, what have you got for us, Doctor Shane? Well, what what really finished the year for me, literally, because it was this week, was uh, I had reason to be in Sydney at Tech 23. Now, at first, I haven't been on a plane in two years, so that was a little freaky. But um, Tech 23 is this showcase of homegrown deep technologies, all from Australia, Australian inventors. And it's a showcase of 23 companies. And by the way, why 23? Because the person who originally organized it 23 was their favorite number. (laughs) <laughs> find out really important things while we were there. Okay. Um, but <clears throat> I, I don't want to talk about the companies. If, if, if you're interested in the companies, Google Tech 23, you can find out about them. But what I did, what, what really just threw me was the amazing discoveries that were actually these companies were based on. And I just wanted to, to share a few as these are homegrown Australian inventions that, that really can change the world. And it's about science changing the world. And so the few that, that I saw was one example was... Uh, a uh these researchers were using a they they used the they were making biomimetic surfaces so they were inspired by shark skin which we know can you know we even hear about shark skin on 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 swimmers clothes but they were making coatings that were inspired by shark skins to go on airplanes to reduce drag reduction and greatly increase 
increase fuel efficiency. So giving a an entire plane a shark skin swimsuit. Um, there was, and, and, you know, to be able to come up with that idea and then figure out how to get it on a plane is an awful lot of science and engineering. Um, there were medical technologies that I didn't know about. So there was a company that had basically made a wearable headband. And, and I don't think it's like tennis headband Andre Agassi, but um, for monitoring blood flow in patients after a stroke. Because as I found out, once one has a stroke, they do a CT scan to see what went awry. And then they monitor you in the hospital, but they really can't see what happens if you have another stroke till after another CT scan, which they might do 24 hours later. So this in-between time, they can actually monitor blood flow in the brain because changes in blood flow in the brain would be a flag to go, hey, we need to attention for something now. And um, I just didn't know that was a problem. And that was an amazing way that they could sense blood flow in the brain just by putting a, effectively a headband on someone. And... and and so, you know, you see amazing advances in in in, in, in medical science that, that are getting made to help people at scale and, and, and things like an airplane. But the, the final one I'll, I'll mention was um, a company that wanted to make hydrogen. Now, people make hydrogen all the time. There's a lot of technical challenges for making it, um, mostly because of, of how it's made. It needs very clean water in, in most of the ways we think to make hydrogen. But they actually had developed a biocatalyst, which is bugs or bacteria that could make high-purity hydrogen from things like straw and other bio-wastes. And I was just like, wow, you know, being able to do that, and, and, and regardless of the concentrations, just being able to create energy that way is, 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 is a definition of green hydrogen I hadn't thought of. Mm. Um, and, and, and there was one final one where they're an early-stage technology, but they're, they're basically using a combination of electricity and, and chemistry and, and some very clever chemistry to uh, be able to make ammonia from water and air. Ammonia is normally made from fossil fuels. And, and so I kind of looked at them and I went, have you guys thought if you could make urea? Because I'm pretty sure everyone would be happy if you could make AdBlue right now. Um, they went, yeah, we're, we're, we're still a couple of years off. There's a lot of science to nut out still. But you can start to see the potential for how science can really impact problems of today and these are all australian grown ideas yeah so i i just i I found it an inspirational day of seeing the type of science that's coming out of australia and and that has the potential to affect our lives excellent stuff ray thanks for that good to hear about those things and once again can i just say sharks are awesome sharks are awesome (laughs) and we should use shark technology everywhere stop killing sharks and you know sharks are awesome um this is a mantra i've had for a few decades now but uh very proud moment for me was when i took my eight-year-old son onto one of uh, the steve Irwin, you know one of the uh sea shepherd fleet and they were talking about whales and he came out with a question to the person doing the tour saying why don't you protect sharks as well and the woman looked very sheepish and said oh we would like to <laughs> we need more money um but it was uh, it was a moment for me of great pride that i've instructed my children that sharks are good anyway uh enough of that soapbox uh Lyndon, you're in the studio what have you got for us well i'm excited about our name chain next year sharks a go-go it sounds Shark- like it's yeah, yeah well, be i'd be all show. for it i'm not sure triple i'll go of it but you know <laughs> have a crack um well i suppose i wanted to maybe continue the theme of about how our science and people can change the world, but possibly looking at it from a 
maybe a more negative point of view. Obviously, 2021 has been a big year for climate change science. Mm. Not only did we have COP26 in Glasgow a couple of months ago, but we also had the first instalment of the sixth assessment report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released in August. Um, Obviously, those events were quite big. And we talked about them on the show. Maybe a lot of the the outcomes weren't that surprising. Climate change is happening. It's warming. It's real. It's bad. It's us. It's affecting every single country, every single continent. And the pledges that are being made around the world are not enough to keep the warming of the planet uh, below 1.5 degrees above about 1850 temperatures. But I don't really want to talk about that. I wanted to talk about a study that came out uh, just before COP26. And I picked this one because when we bring stories to this show, I, I, I like to bring stories that really stick with me during the year. And this one really stuck with me. And it wasn't because the science was particularly revolutionary. They were looking at extreme weather and climate events around the world. That's done heaps and heaps of times. Ailey and I could talk for days about studies that do that. They were using computer models to look at past climate and future climate. And again, that's done by organisations all around the world. But what was different about this study was its framing. Instead of saying, okay, well, how many heat waves were there in 1850, 1950, 2050? What's going to happen in the future compared to what happened in the past? Instead of looking at those kinds of things, they asked, okay, if you were born in 1960... How many heat waves are you going to experience in your life? How many floods? How many droughts Mm. on average? And if you were born last year, as my daughter was, how many events will you experience in your life based on what is projected to happen in the future? And I think this framing is really, you know, it's a really important way to kind of change the conversation and bring these abstract global numbers that seem small and seem far away down to, you know, your child who's playing Mm. in the playground right Mm. now. And if you had a child who was born in Australia last year, they will experience four times as many heat waves as somebody born in 1960, Mm. three times as many droughts, Mm. and one and a half times as many uh, floods and bushfires as well. Right. Like based on current pledges, Mm. which is pretty pretty full on, you know. and. I think for this, you know, it stuck with me and it continues to stick with me. Yesterday, I was at a playground with my daughter and it was really hot and muggy yesterday. I don't know if anybody felt that. it was gross. It was gross. It was really impressive. And I just, (laughs) I was playing with her on the swings and we had to move because she wouldn't wear a hat and it was really sunny. And I just kept thinking four times as many days like this. Oh, my God. Mm. How is she going to handle this? Mm. How is she going to cope? And I suppose the good news or the, the action point here is that if we can keep to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial temperatures, then those risks are halved, right? So it'll become two times as many heat waves. And the the reduction for floods and bushfires, I think, is about 40%. And so the IPCC report, it's huge. There's 350 pages of just the first section, but it can be summed up as every tenth of a degree matters, every decade matters, every choice that we make matters. And I think this study really kind of brings that home. The lead author wrote it because he's got three kids and Mm. he just thought, this Mm. is, Mm. why are we not yelling about this some more? Let me see if I can tell this story in a way that connects science to stories, which I I think is really important. I mean, okay, it's not the first true millipede, but I think it's a a really important study to get across. Well, it's certainly a good way to reframe things because the the ways we're doing at the moment aren't quite cutting the mustard. So we can talk about how important it is and that all we like at the end of the day, 
the way in which it's being communicated isn't quite getting across the line. So we have to adapt and we have to keep getting better at it. The second we stop trying, and just, you know, that's it. Yeah, couldn't agree shit. more. All right, and, and last up with our little pieces of news, uh, Chris KP, I'm hoping he's on the line. I think he is. I feel like I'm on the line, um, I, you know. I, it's, it, but that's a, that's more a sensory thing. It doesn't mean it actually stands up to any kind of objective metric. Um, uh, yes. So most people who are listening to this right now can't see me, uh, and that includes everybody on the program because I can't get my video to work. You're not missing much. Um, anyway, uh, listen. I it's tough, and I think it's I think it's great that we've got a name change for next year, um, and I think it's great that we've got a new bar for ourselves. We've set ourselves a bar of what actually cuts the mustard, and that is: is this story I'm about to tell as important as an actual true millipede? I think it's important to have those standards <laughs> um, as we look into the future and continue to raise the bar. Um, and that is a very high bar to reach. Mark my words. Uh, I've done my best, and this is a very recent story, but it's something that. It kind of snuck through a bit for me. Uh, you know, it, it didn't seem to get a lot of a lot of noise, even though you know, by any me- by any measure, it's it's a bigger story. Um, and that is that you know, human beings, or at least human technology, has for the first time, and I can I'll use the phrase out of the media release, touched the sun. Mm. Um, the, uh, the 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 Parker Solar Probe, which I think was launched in about twenty eighteen, I think it's, it's a few years been hovering about out there, which makes some sense, um, has actually touched the sun's corona it's got into that first layer of the sun uh, now if you if you think about this a bit if you're going to go and hang out at the sun which is well let's face it it's warm um you you probably want to hang around there for quite a short period of time and what people don't know i think is what well, not widely publicized is that the parker solar probe is the fastest known human built object and that makes sense because you're going to be dipping in and out of the sun. You don't want to hang around for longer than you need to. But it did spend a couple of hours there. I'm um, looking at what's known as the alpha critical surface, which is the point below which the sun actually starts to drive solar wind. So the stuff that has a massive influence over the nature of the atmosphere, potentially life on the planet, um, our magnetic, the Earth's magnetic field shields itself from these solar winds just to, to, a, to an extent. That stuff is all generated by the sun. We don't really know how. So it's, I think it's great that we've got to the edge of the sun with an object which is picking up measurements, but it's not finished. So I was kind of assumed when I first read this that, oh, yeah, it's going to dive into the sun and, you know, thanks very much, see you later. But it's not finished. Our plan is to go deeper and hang around for a bit longer. I don't know how much a bit longer is. Uh, but, yes, we're, we're, we're starting to dive into the sun, which is the driver of life on the planet. I think it's an extraordinarily important bit of work. Thanks, Chris KP. Yeah, I was thinking about that one too, and it's only just happened in the last week. And if you, you yeah. have a look on the NASA website, folks, you can see the video footage of what this actually looks like, and it is quite phenomenal. Um, it, you know, when you actually have the clip behind you when you're looking at this video and realize this thing is skimming the surface of the sun, which is, uh, yeah, it's a tad hot. Um, it's damn dangerous. So the fact that this apparently the solar solar panels are working real well, um, no surprises, <laughs> no surprises there, folks. We're going to take a break for some important station announcements, and we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to Einstein at GoGo. Triple R. Now, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to the last show of Einstein and GoGo for 2021. And uh, I'm going to hand over now to Lauren and uh, Chris KP, who have been assigned a special project for the week. Over to you two. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Shane. Uh, it's a special project for two reasons. One is that uh, it will never, ever happen again. Uh, certainly not in quite the same way as it's about to happen. Uh, and and it's uh, it's special because it means something to all of us at, at, the, uh, the, at the program. Um, 
as, as Dr. Shane mentioned right at the top of the program, we are in, uh, well, this is the last show that we know of uh, that, uh, that Dr. Crystal is going to be on air with us. So we thought we'd have a little quick look back at, um, at life as it has been uh, with the, you know, under the, the guidance of, of Dr. Crystal, if I can put it like that. Um, but of course, when I use the phrase Dr. Crystal, I am in fact, you know, starting a bit later than her starting point because our understanding, and we've been trawling through the archives for this, is that Dr. Crystal actually probably first appeared um, on Einstein and Gogo in 2003, um, but became a regular contributor in 2004 when she was a PhD student. So what that means, uh, in fact, I vaguely recall, you know, some excitement of, of her earning the, the title Dr. Crystal. I vaguely recall that. I may have invented that, but I feel like it happened. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, on air, I, I mean. Um, I'm sure that it happened officially. Yeah. Um, not that I've asked for transcripts, but I'm sure it did. Um, so what that means, though, is that, um, is that, uh, that Dr. Crystal, um, you know, went from PhD to CEO, uh, and she's gone from Weehigh to GSK, and we've known her throughout that entire journey. But let's cast our minds back to the beginning, if we will. 2004, um, the, the single biggest science event of 2004 was the regular appearance of Dr. Crystal on the radio. One of the second or third biggest events would have to be uh, the Cassini-Huygens probe entering Saturn's orbit. Uh, it was also the year, by the way, that we discovered the previously unknown species, um, Homo florensiensis in Indonesia. Um, so a big year in science, I think, is a reasonable assertion. If anyone uh, on the, in the team or on air would like to make themselves feel old, please note, of course, that this was also um, the, uh, the year that Facebook launched and Gmail <laughs> and Firefox. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, and the first year of, um, uh, of the first case of SARS uh, was diagnosed uh, in 2004 as well. Um, I, I know that, um, that many of our, our team and our listeners, and, and in particular I'm thinking Dr Ewan here, will uh, be pleased to know that was also the year that Take Me Out uh, was released by Franz Ferdinand and Missy Higgins released Scar and Spider-Bait produced their version of Black Betty. Um, biggest selling movies of the year, Passion of the Christ, Fahrenheit 9-11, Shrek 2, Harry Potter, Prisoner of Azkaban, uh, Howard Keel died, as did Ronald Reagan and Marlon Brando and Christopher Reeve um, and Francis Crick. So it was a busy year, um, but I still stand by my earlier assertion that it was one in which um, Dr. Christie was the biggest science story that we knew. Fuck Lauren. Yeah, definitely. And I've always noted um, when we really talk about Mars on the radio that Dr. Crystal gets very excited. And I think it might be tied to the fact that in 2004, that was the year that the twin rovers hit Mars and found evidence that water once flowed on the planet. And um, I think the really lovely story about the, the Mars rovers, so they're spirit and opportunity. We've talked a lot about them on the show over the years. It was supposed to be a three-month mission uh, and they went for a lot longer than that so spirit actually stopped working in 2010 an opportunity in 2018 and i think that's a really nice kind of analogy for you know scientific careers and the fact that you don't really know where things are going to go and i think um crystal had a, a career that really does reflect that as well doing amazing things in government advocacy and being a ceo and now this fantastic role at gsk so we're very very proud of it the other thing that happened in 2004 was um, President Bush, George Bush, came out and unveiled a plan that there'd be a manned mission to Mars. And he unfortunately was a little bit off on his date. So he was hoping <laughs> that we would be there in 2020. So we um, didn't quite make that timeline, but hopefully we're still looking at that in the future. Chris? 
Um, no, that's essentially all that um, that I had in terms of, of events. I will note though that on a personal level, I I actually I don't I don't know either. By the way, I think that I actually started as a regular uh, at about the same time, give or take a year. So um, if I could put it this way, Dr. Crystal, I think you've been you know part of my Einstein a go go journey right from the very beginning. So I, I don't know whether that's um, good for my reputation or bad for yours, or just a downer for the entire program. But it's uh, it's something that I note. So it's. It, I, I, I thank you for your uh, your collegiateship, your uh, your support, and and the laughs over the years. I have fond memories um, of the craziness of radiothons many many times. Not to mention the joy and the um, and just the the depth of experience that you get from um, OBs, uh, OBs at the Synchrotron, OBs at the uh, at Vic Market, among others. Yes. Oh, my goodness. How good were the Synchrotron OBs? Um, I have to say, the Synchrotron (laughs) outdoor broadcasts were probably my favourite thing. Like, I am an unashamable, like, total (laughs) Synchrotron fangirl. Like, I love the Synchrotron. And getting to do an outdoor broadcast there probably was, like, my favourite thing ever. <laughs> I remember, is, I remember I, I, those. I remember Dr. Crystal being at those, and, and I'd, I'd be there at the desk going, "Hey, hey, we're, the show. You're going to have to do the show. Get back over here to the desk. <laughs> my, you can in, look in around later." Mind, <laughs> it's like, like almost rivaling my favourite day of the year, like versus Christmas, was the Synchrotron Open Day, like just the best. That we have this amazing <laughs> facility here in Melbourne that like whizzes electrons around at the speed of light and lets you look at things that are like almost invisible any other way. Like honestly, the Synchrotron is amazing. <laughs> there you go, Chris. You've uncorked a bottle there. Oh, that was a, that's a relief because I kind of had the, I had that memory and then thought I hope I hope she still feels the same way because that's going to be weird. I think I'm okay with that now. Anyway, but yes, um, Dr. Laura, anything else from you? Any yeah, any other well, memories? For sure. Look, I'm, I'm going to segue from Crystal's use of the word fangirl because I actually feel like I'm a massive Dr. Crystal fangirl. So I actually saw Crystal before I met her at the um, rally for research, and a lot of our listeners will probably remember this. It was ten years ago now. Mm. which, you know, speaking of feeling old. <laughs> but um, so this was part of the Discoveries Needs Dollars campaign in 2011. And this was when there were rumours going around that there was going to be a $400 million cut to um, medical research. And Crystal was absolutely a leader in this campaign. And I still remember her standing up at the front of the rally, um, literally rallying the troops. We were all there in our lab coats and, and our signs and placards to, to really show the government how important research is to our community and um i just really wanted to say crystal look you, you know you you are absolutely an idol for so many of us in terms of what you've done for science and for science communication but also for your support for everyone in in the field and for diversity and equity and so we will we'll miss you as you head off to london but we know you're going to do amazing things um you were very modest before, so everyone should be aware her new role is the Global Scientific Director of COVID Therapeutics for GSK. So this is absolutely outstanding, and we're very, very proud of you, Crystal. Yep, indeed. Thank you, Lauren. Thanks, Chris KP. Now, I thought, uh, Crystal, if you didn't mind, because uh, what most of you don't realise is, is that I keep intimate records of every broadcast we've ever done for all eternity and uh, keep these just in case, for legal reasons, I need to uh, go after any of you at any time. Um, and, Lauren, I think you know that I've got some stuff there that you've said that would put you in real trouble if need be, um, which has come up. I I'm in dread. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you probably are in bigger trouble than anyone else on the team. Um, but uh, I was I was looking back and I was thinking, you know what? 
you know, how long has Crystal had this thing about therapeutics and drugs and stuff? I mean, I remember her coming across and having a coffee with me at Dr. Dax while she was working at Weehigh and saying, you know, there's this Bio Melbourne network thingy and I'm thinking of moving out of science. What do you think? And I'm like, well, you know, science, you're not moving out of science. Science is a, is a career in many forms and the idea that you have to stay in the lab to be a scientist is frankly outdated bullshit and you know and you know do whatever you want to do do what makes you happy and she's gone on and done all these amazing things but i was thinking back and i was thinking i wonder how how long ago she started spouting this stuff on einstein and gogo and in fact here is a, a bit of audio for you dr crystal from uh, i believe just looking at the date the 23rd of may 2010 which i think was when you were first really starting to get rolled up about this stuff and and you've come a fair way in the last 12 years have a listen to this. Dr. Crystal, you want to wow us with some uh, pharmaceutical talk? Well, I've just got this thing about drug discovery and, and, and I've got this slight concern of where are our new drugs coming from because I don't know if you're aware, but the discovery and registration and licensing of, of new drugs, like not just like reformulations of the old drugs, is actually slowing down. Yeah. Um, uh, quite dramatically, the, the the new drug industry is in a, is in a bit of a slump at the moment. Like for example, um, back in 1996, 53 new drugs were approved for usage by the FDA, which is in America, but um, it's basically a, a benchmark for for the world's sort of drug approval. So 53 new drugs in 1996. In 2006, it was only 18, and last year it was only 19. So we've only got 19 new drugs registered. Do we, last do we just year. don't need new, more new ones? No, this is the problem <laughs> because um, I mean we always need new drugs, but and one of the um, one of the problems is our old drugs are becoming ineffective. Because if you think about the development of um, resistance to antibiotics, for example, and the emergence of um, anti of, of drug resistant bacteria, our old drugs are failing us. We need new drugs. We need new drugs. Yeah, and and not just for. Um, not just for um, for bacteria, but obviously there's a lot of you know imp- impetuous to search for new drugs for diseases such as um, cancer, Alzheimer's, mental health. You know, there's a there's a real need for for new pharmaceutical agents, and and we're really slowing down. And and this is something that kind of bothers me a little bit, particularly with the microbes. I mean, if we're going to have a war on microbes, we we need to bulk up our arsenal because we don't want them to get ahead of us. We, is that our latest thing? A war on microbes? A war on we microbes. Seem, I mean, politicians <laughs> seem to be declaring war on everything these well, days. Well, I'd be it? quite pleased if um, the war on microbes was as well. Funded as some of the other wars that have been proclaimed. <laughs> I, um, I think they should be more adventurous too in these war ons. Just, I mean, they, because they do politically hold little little weight for me. You know, I, I'd like to go for a, a war on Mr. Whippy Vans that play their music <laughs> after 10 p.m. Yeah, can we do that? Oh, um, I, I'm not quite. That's a bit of a niche market, but, yeah. but the reason why I, I would I would like there to be a war on microbes declared is that drug discovery is very expensive. Mm. It, it takes a lot of money, and really, only pharmaceutical companies really have the um, the really big bucks for. for for drug development mm. and a lot of the time you know their companies they have to take into consideration their profit margins and how much it's going to take um, a product to develop and, the, and one of the problems with antimicrobials um, is that um, it takes you five to ten years to develop a project a, a drug and bring it to market and in that time frame the bacteria develop resistance like mm. during testing and so pharmaceutical companies a lot of them have decided that it's actually not cost effective to develop antibacterials. That's quite frightening actually if you th- well, well, well. There we go, Dr. Crystal. Uh, seems you had a bit of a bugbear going back then, 12 years ago. Yeah, it turns out um, throughout my entire career, I have had a had a, 
a passion to be part of this war on microbes from my PhD working on malaria all the way through to my role now working in infectious diseases in the pharmaceutical industry, trying to contribute to um, uh, drug development and uh, making sure we do have uh, more options for patients across the world. So, wow, Dr Shane, I'm really overwhelmed by that um, very passionate piece of footage that you just played because I think what this year has shown us is that we do need a war on microbes and that when we do put the resources and the will and the policies in place that as a as a as a as a world that we can develop new vaccines and drugs quickly when there is an articulated um, need, a cause. And so, yeah, wow, um, that's incredibly, uh, <laughs> incredibly emotional for me to hear uh, that footage from uh, more than 10 years ago because I think, you know, now there is a recognition that we do need to continue funding basic research. We need discovery research to happen because those drugs don't just pop through out of nowhere there's decades of research that goes in even before companies get involved so um wow what an amazing um find dr shane <laughs> oh look i mean in the in the real story there is that my voice hasn't changed a bit in 12 years i think that's what we should focus on but crystal um in all seriousness it's been such a pleasure having you as part of the team and a lot of people wouldn't remember this um especially the team on the call at the moment but there was a period when you and i pretty much did the show every single week together um after you came back from london the first time and um and you know that was that was really you know quite a big commitment for you to triple r and the time that you've put in over the years to triple r has been extensive and i think you know for everyone out there listening the show um you know is something that i'll do until they carry me out in, in a box but you know in terms of everyone else who has really busy lives and they're preparing all these stories and work that they do it's a huge commitment and um and crystal has put in almost two decades of that commitment now crystal i said i'd give you a bit of time to chat so uh over to you if you wanted to say a few things or tell us uh, anything else about your travels and your experiences well dr shane i do seem to remember that you used to let me pick the music um back in the day but like was it because i played was it because i played too much nick cave that you decided to take that um responsibility away from me oh, it wouldn't have been that <laughs> i would have been okay with that but uh geez, that uh, must have been a while amazing. back it must have been a while back yeah. It was, um, and uh, back when blogs were a thing, we actually used to blog every episode yep. of the show, but uh, yeah, sadly blogs have fallen out of fashion. Anyway, look, um, I'm just reflecting on something Dr. Ray said about science changing the world, and I think for me, when I look back at when I started on Einstein and GoGo to today, um, it's really been amazing to me what science has changed the world. Um, and as I said, I was a malaria uh, researcher. I did my PhD on malaria. And for me, one of the big things has been the dramatic decline in malaria deaths and malaria infections around the world in the past 20 years. And again, that has only come about because of the, the political will and the investment of time and money into the increasing the, the, the arsenal against malaria. We've got new treatments, a new vaccine, but also just, you know, using really simple things like bed nets to prevent infection um, from mosquitoes. And so I think it actually echoes some of our pandemic uh, response is that you need lots of different tools um, in the toolkit to be able to have an impact on, on disease. And for malaria, you know, it, it used to kill over 2 million people every year. Back when I was doing my PhD, 
PhD. That's like the opening sentence of my thesis was how many people uh, malaria kills each year. And that number has gone down by over 60%. Um, so it's really impressive the gains that have been seen. And for me, my highlight of 2021, since everyone was sharing their 2021 highlights, was actually that China was declared malaria-free in 2021. Mm. They had over 30 million cases a year, um, you know, back in the early 20th century. And to go from being one of the most affected countries in the world to having been declared malaria-free in 2021, just a massive achievement. So I hope we'll see the elimination of malaria in my lifetime, as well as wiping some other diseases off the planet. But in terms of that's kind of my kind of personal reflection, but I think one of the pieces of science that for me has really changed uh, the world has been uh, genome sequencing. And if we all think back to uh, the fact that the human genome, the first draft of the human genome was published um, in the year 2000. Do you remember that big press conference they had at the White House? Like mm. they had, um, they had uh, who was it at the time? Bill Clinton and Tony Blair at the White House in 2000 announcing the first kind of, you know, uh, sequ- uh, human genome draft had been published. It was massive. And um, and throughout Einstein and GoGo, I remember doing lots of different stories over the years when different animals uh, had their genome sequenced um but i think what what it's really opened up now is this whole world of personalized medicine and so we're actually now seeing the ability to uh sequence an entire person's genome and then being able to more importantly not just collect all the data about the a's and g's and t's and c's in the sequence but actually being able to use that information to diagnose people and prescribe personalized therapies for them um, to be able to overcome their diseases and we're seeing that now in cancer patients you know almost all cancer patients many of them have their tumors sequenced um, to be able to work out which drugs to use but even like babies who are born with rare diseases where they're really not sure what's wrong with the baby you know really distressing situations where parents just don't know what's wrong with their kid sequence the genome and find out oh actually they're deficient in this particular vitamin or this particular enzyme so if we you know give you a targeted treatment you know those children are then going on to lead far more normal lives so for me one of the biggest advances over the past two decades has been in genome sequencing and of course this year with the pandemic our ability to sequence SARS-CoV-2 so quickly and publish the sequence opened up the entire world of to being able to discover interventions against this uh, emerging uh, infectious disease. So for me, genome sequencing and, and how fast and quick and cheap it's become has been like a huge, you know, piece of science that's changed the world. Mm-hmm. But what I've loved most about Einstein and GoGo, as well as all the fantastic crew here, has been the fact that we've been able to feature so many Melbourne scientists. Um, and the, one of the things I've loved the most about this show is that It really talks about the fantastic science we have here in Melbourne and Australia. I mean, I know we've interviewed Nobel Prize winners and I know we've interviewed international superstars, but for me, it's week in, week out, hearing about the amazing, talented science that's happening in Melbourne um, week on week, Shane. And so I think for me, that's just been one of the things that's kept me going is that, that there are smart, courageous, intelligent people doing amazing research here that will change the world. So I think for me, that's always been the highlight and the, the value of Einstein and Gogo. I hope our listeners have enjoyed it too. Yep. Thanks so much, Crystal. And a heartfelt thanks from all of us for all your efforts over the years. It's been great having you on the show. And I absolutely will have you back at some stage when we get you up in the middle of the night while you're in London to chat about what's going over there that will happen. Folks, we're only about a minute or so away from handing 
over to Eat It for their last show for the year. But a few people to thank from my end. First of all, all the support staff at Triple R for helping us go on there. In particular, Elizabeth, who is my sort of helping hand with guests and everything else. Whenever I need her, she is there. She's been fantastic all year round. Big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for pretty much uh, finishing on time every week and especially to Kent for all the discussions that we have uh, out in the green room before the show. Um, to the fabulous team of podcasters led by Peter. Thanks so much, team. Uh, without you guys, the podcast wouldn't exist. Really appreciate that. To the 152 guests that we've had this year and all their host institutions that have helped us to put them on air, we would not have a great show without you guys being on. To all the 20 PhD and 20-minute contestants, um, fabulous work. We hope to get you all back for longer interviews at some stage. Please contact us if you're interested. Um, and to everyone out there listening who supported Triple R during the Radiothon, uh, you know that you make the station go, and uh, we really appreciate your incredible support to my entire team for being online and available today and all throughout the year. It's been a tough year not having you guys in the studio, but uh, you've done well. And from me, a thank you to everyone who listens, whether you're a subscriber or not. We really appreciate your support. Remember, science is everywhere. I'm Dr. Shane. We will see you again on the 23rd of January. That's when we come back. Over now to the great team from Eden. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.